church. My name is Styles, and it's so good to be with you this morning. What a wonderful time in the Lord's presence during worship. Let's pray as we get started. Our Father, we give this time to you this morning and pray that you would bless our time in the word together, increase our wisdom and knowledge of your word, strengthen our resolve against a world that has insidious intentions against your church. For the body that is not present here today, that are at home sick, we pray that you would touch them today by the healing virtue of the Lord Jesus Christ. Touch them from the top of their heads to the soles of their feet. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, this year we've been walking through the book of Mark and you've heard Moises say that Mark is the gospel for today, and, and I agree, at least when you consider our modern culture. He mentioned that our attention spans have declined drastically in recent history. A study conducted by Microsoft found that the average attention span of teens and young adults in the year 2000 was 12 seconds. 16 years later, in 2016, that was reduced to 8 seconds, now lower than a goldfish. <laughs> you can imagine if I asked you, I think the poll would be nearly 100%, but the primary culprit of our reduced attention span is the advent of the smartphone, with the first iPhone being released in 2009. In an article published in 2017, it was recorded that typical smartphone owners check their device 80 times a day, probably much more today. I heard on a podcast recently about the effects of technology on our minds that one participant in this particular research study group checked his email over 400 times in a single workday. Another study from 2015 involving 41 iPhone users, I'm an Android user by the way, so. <laughs> <laughs> That's, uh, 2015, uh, 41 iPhone users showed that when people hear their phone or the vibration but are unable to respond to it, to answer it, their blood pressure spikes, pulse quickens, and their problem-solving skills decline. So other forms of media were forced to adjust to our declining attention spans. For example, the average shot length in, in movies in the 1930s was about 12 seconds. That has decreased to two and a half seconds today. You need only to pull up any modern trailer for a movie to see how quick the cutscenes are. With Facebook, we could read lengthy updates from family and friends, even if we didn't want to. <laughs> then Twitter enforced a word limit on our posts. Instagram paved the way for photo-only updates. We don't need to know anything about you, just we need, we need to see you. Now TikTok is aiming to remove the last remaining vestiges of our once disciplined minds. When considering that, I'm not trying to make you feel guilty for having all these things. You know. <laughs> settle down, settle down. <laughs> but when considering the four gospels, and although it certainly wasn't written with this particular challenge in mind, Mark seems best designed to appeal to our generation. Having fast cut scenes full of action and drama to hold the reader's attention for just a little bit longer. While Mark may be the front runner 
for our generation by itself is an, it is an incomplete picture of Jesus. There is a reason we have four gospels in our Bible. And that is because there is harmony and unity in the diversity of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John's collective portrayal of the life, ministry, death, and resurrection of our Lord Jesus, the Christ. So this morning, I want to change things up a bit, just for this Sunday, as long as you agree not to tattle on me to Moises when he returns next week, Miss Rosie. I want us to, figuratively speaking, step out of the sanctuary and away from preaching and step into the classroom or lecture hall, depending on how sophisticated we want to be this morning, and engage with some teaching. Let's zoom out of Mark and travel back to the early stages of church history and take a portrait of these four Gospels. Have you ever wondered why we have four Gospels? Are there people, Christians, that... That question has never come to mind? Or do most people think at some point in their Christian journey, why are there four of these? They have the same story. We know that from 2 Timothy 3, that all scripture is God-breathed. And from 2 Peter chapter 1, that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along or moved by the Holy Spirit. So we're not questioning the historical accuracy of these four Gospels or their relevance or their inclusion in our Bibles. We're seeking to understand the mind and the will of God and why he saw fit to have four Gospels paint the picture of Jesus' life and ministry. So here's what we know about the origin of these Gospels. We know that Jesus walked the earth from around 4 B.C. to around 30 A.D., and then subsequent to his ascension, we have a period of between 20 and 40 years before the Gospels were actually written down. This was not unusual, though, because the apostles were following the example that Jesus set by fulfilling the Great Commission. They were preaching the Gospel in Jerusalem and then in Judea and traveling to the ends of the world, proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ. Beyond that, we have no historical indication that any of these apostles were gifted and accomplished writers, nor was it socially or culturally customary, especially in Jewish culture, to archive every word or picture or thought as is common in our modern society. Judaism is steeped in oral tradition, dating all the way back to its beginning with Abraham. That means their history in large part has been passed down from person to person, parents to kids, grandparents to grandkids, friend to friend, by classic face-to-face -face conversations. Deuteronomy 11, 18 through 19 is a good example of this. God says, you shall therefore lay up these words of mine in your heart and in your soul, and you shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall teach them to your children, talking of them when you are sitting in your house and when you are walking by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. Repetition was the name of the game in Jewish society. The apostles itinerating from house church to house church in the first century would have looked and sounded very different than our modern conception of church. Doesn't mean we're wrong. Doesn't mean they were wrong. For 20 to 40 years before writing the Gospels, all of the apostles were traveling from place to place, repeating the same stories to many of the same audiences. But this was not unusual. 
Today, we would feel like we were in some kind of time warp if we came to church every week for a month and heard from a different preacher each week, and they all shared the same five stories. (laughs) But in this process, over these years, the gospel narrative was not only being preserved, but it was being refined. Let me explain. John ends his gospel with a really fascinating verse and compelling truth. He writes, Now there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. It is reasonable then to believe that the apostles were repeating all of the stories we read about in the gospels, but also many others that have now been lost to history that we can ask about when we get to the other side of this life. Not because of carelessness, though, but because the Holy Spirit was moving their hearts and minds of these future gospel writers, influencing the content that must be preserved. Many of the apostles were preaching the gospel to different audiences. And though those many ad- through those many ad- interactions, they would have refined their message to meet the needs and the listeners without sacrificing the heart or truth of the gospel. That brings us to the purpose of each gospel, which was driven by the author's intended audience. But before we go there, let's establish how and when and why the apostles finally did put pen to paper, so to speak, and wrote their gospels. After Jesus ascended into heaven, the New Testament, unfortunately, did not miraculously descend from heaven and drop into the lap of the collective Christian church. Do you wonder sometimes that people think that that's what happened? (laughs) The infantile church, which initially was primarily composed of Jewish Christians, who had, having acknowledged Jesus as their Lord and Savior, depended on their existing canonized scripture, along with the oral tradition now communicated by the apostles of Jesus' words and deeds. Canon is a Greek term meaning standard or measuring stick and was eventually adopted by our early church fathers to refer to the collection of books that would ultimately be included in the Bible. So this is the canon of scripture. These 66 books, 39 in the old and 27 in the new. But alas, in in these earliest days of the church, the only biblical canon was what? The Old Testament. And they didn't call it by, by that back then. They called it the law and the prophets the books of Moses, the Torah. Because these apostles couldn't be in more than one place at the same time, they started writing letters, which we call epistles, to the communities of faith. We even see Paul giving this directive to circulate his letters. In Colossians 4, 16, he says, And when this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans. And see also that you read the letter from Laodicea which is interesting. I want to call attention to this. Do we have a book in the Bible, in the New Testament called Laodiceans, like we do Colossians? So it's, it's important because there were many other epistles that were written at this time that were not included in our canon. And we'll get to that. First Thessalonians 5.27, Paul is pretty forceful, forceful here. He says, I put you under oath before the Lord that you have this letter read to all the brothers. 
So now we have this network of churches in the middle of, first, of the first century passing around apostolic letters, occasionally hearing from the apostle or from an apostle or an apostle adjacent minister, Timothy and Barnabas or Apollos you could think of, but still holding fast to their scripture, the Old Testament. That was the first factor that led to these written accounts. The physical limitation of the apostles being in one place at one time combined with the proliferation and explosive growth of the church necessitated a more efficient medium of communication, the written word. There were two other contributing factors that led to the inscription of the gospels. One was there the apostles' unrealized expectation that Jesus would return in their lifetime. Paul, when describing the rapture, includes himself as a participant when he writes to the Thess Thessalonians saying, then we, including himself, who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them. Who's them? Those that have died. And he's not including himself on the people that have died. When we are gathered together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. And then in 1 John 2, John writes, Children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. In 1 Peter 4, Peter says, The end of all things is at hand. Were the apostles wrong? to be so flippant, to disregard their responsibility to preserve the testimony of Jesus? No, of course not. They were once again following Jesus's command to watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. Four times in Revelation alone did Jesus say to John, I am coming soon. But we must realize and be consistently reminded that God does not live by our timetable. Peter reminded the young church of this in one of his letters when addressing the scoffers that were sure to come. He wrote in 2 Peter chapter 3, starting in verse 1, he said, This is now the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved. In both of them I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is this promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlooked this fact that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. And that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness but is patient toward you. Not wishing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And aren't we all thankful for that patience? So it was the encroachment of their own bodily mortality that drove the apostles. One moment, church. Are, are there any here today who have not received the Lord Jesus as your savior, as your master. 
If there are, and you want to today, just slip your hand up and we'll pray together. If you're here and in that position and just couldn't get that hand lifted up, find me uh, after service or any one of our leaders and we'll pray with you. But there was another more insidious reason compelling them to safeguard the truth and the purity of what they had seen and heard from Jesus. And that was the emergence of these antichrists that John referenced. Amidst the explosive growth of the church in, in its early stages was the covert and diabolical invasion of wolves in sheep's clothing. Jesus himself warned his audience to beware of false prophets who, who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. To comprehend the severity of this problem, let me read a sampling of the warnings that were given by the apostles. 2 Corinthians 11, 13 through 15, Paul says, For such men are false prophets, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of, of Christ. It won't be obvious. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as, as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond to their deeds. 2 Peter chapter 2, Peter says, But false prophets also arose among the people. Just as there will be false prophets or false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon them themselves swift destruction. Jude chapter one, only one chapter in Jude, verse four. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. And in 2 John 1, 7, John says, for many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is a deceiver and the antichrist. So the legitimate threat of these heretical factions emerging in the body is why Paul was so forceful when he wrote to the Galatians. He says, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. Not to make light of it, but the mental picture that we get that emerges is the apostles playing whack-a-mole in the first century, trying to pre prevent the sheep from being led astray. So while these three factors played a significant role in the eventual recording of the Gospels, it is obviously the ministry of the Holy Spirit that ultimately moved these men to pen the specific content that we now, we now read in our Bibles. All of the New Testament books were written before the end of the first century. The first being James or Galatians written sometime in the 40s, and then the last being Revelation written in the 90s. By the end of the second century, excuse me, these were not the only books or letters in circulation. As I mentioned, the apostles or apostle adjacent ministers likely wrote many other letters that are not included 
in the New Testament. So it begs the question, why do we only have 27 books in our New Testament? By the end of the second century, the church acknowledged a canon of 20 books, which included the four gospels, Acts, the 13 letters of Paul, 1 Peter, and 1 John. The seven other books were in circulation at the time, but lacked universal recognition. So during the third and fourth century, the church began to evaluate all the books and the letters that were in circulation against tests of canonicity. There were three such tests. The first, they're all, this is a fancy word, apostolicity. Was the book written by an apostle or the product of someone working in close proximity with an apostle? So not, not all the New Testament books were written by apostles themselves. We have two gospels that weren't written by apostles, Mark and Luke. And then you have Jude and um, is, is another. As a, uh, excuse me. That was the first test. The second test, orthodoxy. So they evaluated these books to see if they were harmonious with the doctrine and theology of the rest of Scripture. And the third, circulation. Was the book widely circulated and universally accepted by the, by the church at that time? I don't know if anybody's ever heard of the term apocrypha or apocryphal books. They're included uh, in uh, Catholic Bibles, not in our Bible, Apocryphal uh, books were also in circulation at this time and could have been written by some of these same uh, folks, not likely, but they failed, uh, most likely they failed your apostolicity test as they were written by someone else, even if they were claimed like you have one called the Gospel of Judas or the Gospel of Thomas. So they threw a name on there. How is today we, we buy books or autobiographies, but clearly written by ghostwriters. It's no different. They're throwing a name on it. Um, so they failed that test and also failed orthodoxy. Those books are not included in our canon because they deviate from the rest of the harmony of the doctrine and theology tests in scripture, uh, uh, taught in scripture. So as a result of these rigorous tests, Athanasius, he was the Bishop of Alexandria representing the church in the East, wrote an Easter letter in 367 AD where he listed the 27 books in the New Testament as exclusively canonical. A few decades later, the church in the West affirmed this list at the Council of Carthage in 397 AD. So now let us return to our original question of why do we have four Gospels? Among all the reasons that only God knows, I believe one reason resides with the intended audience of each gospel writer, consequently influenced the purpose and content of their write, the writing. So let's look at that. Mark and Matthew were written before Luke and John. There is some debate, uh, and Walt mentioned this Friday when he was teaching, a wonderful teaching if you missed it. There's some debate about who wrote theirs first. Uh, but it's of no consequence to us. Really, some say that Matthew originally wrote his gospel in Hebrew sometime in the 40s, and then it appeared later in the, in the 50s in Greek. Uh, but again, it, it doesn't really matter to us. What's important and of interest is that they wrote to very different audiences. Mark's gospel was written with a heavy influence from Peter. That comes as no surprise when we compare the pace of the book to the personality of Peter. Peter was a man of action and urgency. Mark is written with action and urgency. But who were Mark and Peter writing to? Who was their audience? 
We know that from the writings of some early church fathers, Arrhenius, Ignatius, Eusebius among them, that Peter made his way to Rome at some point. Additionally, Peter's final greeting from 1 Peter is interesting. He says, she who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends you greetings, and so does my son Mark. She being a pseudonym for the church, and Babylon in this greeting most likely a pseudonym for Rome, because he could have been imprisoned or gotten in trouble with the law for putting Rome in uh, a negative light. If indeed Mark's audience, and Peter's, is the Romans, then we can extrapolate his intent which was to accentuate the unrivaled power and absolute authority of Jesus over and against the supposed rulers of this present world. Matthew, on the other hand, was a stringent rule follower, tax collector, a numbers guy. Things had to make sense to him. They had to add up. So he was the ideal candidate to write his gospel to his own people, the Jews. We see Matthew consistently tracing Jesus's actions to the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. And beyond that, he emphasizes Jesus as the anticipated Messiah that they all knew about. He also includes a genealogy which traces Jesus back through King David all the way to Abraham, who was the beginning of Judaism. Even the way Matthew organizes his gospel seems to communicate that Jesus is the one whom Moses prophesied about, the one who would be the lawgiver. Matthew uses a five-fold structure of Jesus' discourses or sermons, each ending with a familiar formula. And when Jesus finished these sayings, his audience would have had a hard time denying that the connection between these words and Deuteronomy 32:45, which says, and when Moses had finished speaking all these words to all Israel. Luke was written a decade or so after Matthew and Mark. Luke was a physician and a traveling companion of Paul. Paul was the self-described apostle to the Gentiles. Not surprisingly then, Luke writes his gospel with the Gentiles in mind. Luke, having accompanied Paul on his many missionary journeys, would have observed Gentiles, meaning non-Jewish people, receiving Jesus, but possessing very little context of the history of God and his people, which made them ripe for these ravenous wolves to attack because they're, they're assimilated in this culture of idol worship. So how easy would it be for them to just add another God in Jesus? Additionally, a minority of his audience would have had any awareness of the events that took place in Israel during Jesus's ministry, even though it was so shortly thereafter, and in particular, the events of the Passion, Passion Week. Thus, Luke explains to us in his own words at the beginning of his gospel, the purpose of his writing. He says, inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. Luke is focused on communicating the universality of Jesus, that he came to redeem not just the Jewish people, but all people who would believe on him. In Luke 2, he includes a prophecy from Isaiah that specifically cites Jesus as a light of revelation 
to the Gentiles. Luke also lists a genealogy like Matthew. But Matthew, it's different because it starts with Jesus and goes back. And Luke, uh, excuse me, I might have this reversed, but Luke goes all the way back, not stopping at Abraham, but all the way back to Adam, the father of all mankind, at a time before there was Jew or Gentile. He also includes a story of when Jesus was in a synagogue and infuriated his, Jew, his Jewish onlookers by citing two incidents in the Old Testament when God met the needs of Gentiles bypassing the Jews. When there was a drought and famine in the time of Elijah, Jesus said, there were many ido- widows in Israel, but Elijah was sent to none of them, but only one to Zarephath in the land of Sidon to a woman who was a widow, a Gentile. He then says that there were many lepers in Israel in the time of Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. Again, a Gentile. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are called the synoptic gospels because of their similarities. And because also in early church history, I think it was Eusebius, a synopsis was made of the three attempting to form a single narrative by combining them into one book. John, however, is a departure from the synoptics, entirely different in his approach and apparent purpose. The Gospel of John was written over 30 years after Luke's Gospel. So he's writing his near when he's writing Revelation. And he seems to have a singular emphasis in mind, the deity of Jesus. And he communicates this without sacrificing the humanity of Christ John begins his gospel by drawing the reader's attention back to the beginning of things, Genesis 1.1, and emphatically declaring the everlasting reality of Jesus. He writes, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Before leaving his prologue, though, in verse 14, he states with clarity that Jesus, the Word, became flesh and dwelt among us. John was writing with his eyes and spirit now wide open to the threat of these false teachers and their false doctrines flooding the church. Many were either trying to remove the humanity of Christ or his full divinity. So John set out to prove both. It's in his gospel where we find the seven I am statements, making it clear that Jesus himself proclaimed his own divinity. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way and the truth and the life. I am the true vine. This all culminates in an authoritative confrontation with the religious leaders when Jesus defiantly proclaims, truly, truly, I say to you before Abraham was, I am, which irrefutably drew a line with his Jewish audience from that moment to Exodus 3.14 at the burning bush when he introduced himself to Moses as I am who I am. And thus, we have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, four different gospels from four different writers, all woven together by the Holy Spirit to create a whole picture of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So good to be with you this morning, church.